Kia ora itafano, our oh, grace and peace to you on this first Sunday of Lent. Um, earlier this week it was Ash Wednesday and what an Ash Wednesday it was. Um, we put up a few thoughts on our blog both about Lent and the groaning of the disorder that's going on in our world at the moment. And so if you haven't seen those yet, um, check them out. Go and have a read. Uh, blog. Um, we all desperately need an encounter with the reordering work of the crucified and the risen Christ in this Easter season. Um, today I am continuing our very simply titled Community series. Um, this is part four, so if you haven't tuned in so far, I would really encourage you to go back and to catch up. We have loaded a lot into this series and we hope that it's been helpful to you. We hope that it's been a good encouragement and a call to the necessity of community in this time. This time while the Queen is off the board, remember that analogy? That the Queen is off the board, our Sunday gatherings aren't currently happening and before we come back again after all of the Omicron wave that has, um, is going through our city at the moment, when that's finished and we come back to Sundays, we're talking deeply about community. So if this series has impacted you, or it's got you thinking about some things, then we would love to hear your story. We'd love to hear from you. So please reach out, send us a message. I'd love to know. All right, on to today's talk, so part four. Um, when I was at high school, the Tall Blacks came to town. Uh, the team were doing the rounds of the schools in the region, and they came to put on a demo and an exhibition in our school gym, complete with a DJ and an MC who was like hyping us all up into this lunchtime frenzy. It was wild. So I was there in the crowd with my friends, yelling for like trick rebounds off the backboards, alley oops, and massive dunks. And they put on quite a show, and I found myself in awe of their abilities. But then, in a bit of change of events, the MC started inviting some of us to come down and to do some drills with the Tall Blacks. Um, my friends and I were pointed to, and so we headed down and, and we stepped up to the free throw line to do some free throws. And this seven foot giant of a Tall Black, he bounced a ball, slapped me a high five, and gave me a few quick pointers. He said, you know, plant your feet, um, bend your knees down. Now spot the rim, look at the rim. And now imagine that the ball is like on an arc from the back of your head over to that rim. And then what you want to do is like throw the ball along that arc, let your wrists follow it, tip your fingers off at the end, and just like this. And he just whoops, swish, nothing but net. And he made it look so easy. And the ball was passed back to him, he lobbed it to me. <laughs> and I recounted what he said and I tried to follow the instructions and run through the directions a bit like a systems check. So feet, knees, rim, arc, wrists, fingertips, did them all and I released the ball and as I watched it sail through the air it looked like it was actually going a little bit to the side and the anxiety in my stomach started to build as I thought I am, I've missed this. But I actually just got it enough in the zone and the ball deflected off the rim, clunk, that sound that it makes, dum, and it deflected down and then whoosh, that sound of the net as the ball came down. And, and my eyebrows kind of lifted in shock. This sweaty giant next to me slapped my back, 
and he just asked for the ball back. Yo, get the ball back. Who's next? And, and, and the earlier awe of watching these monsters on the court doing what they could do was replaced with this sense of achievement that I had just stepped up and I had just done something they could do. Watching them was incredible. But doing a bit of what they did, that was even better. You know, this movement from a place of spectating to the place of participating, this is the movement that I want to teach on today. And to do this, I want to start us off in the writings of Luke. I want to look at a couple of pieces of scripture that Luke wrote, the teachings of Jesus, and then the enactment of that teaching through the early church. So we're going to start with Luke 6, 27 to 38. Luke 6, 27 to 38. Luke's writing on the life of Jesus. Here's Jesus doing his teaching in the Sermon on the Plain. He says this, But to you who are willing to listen, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who hurt you. And if someone slaps you on one cheek, offer the other cheek also. If someone demands your coat, offer your shirt also. Give to anyone who asks. And when things are taken away from you, don't try to get them back. Do to others as you would like them to do to you. If you only love those who love you, why should you get credit for that? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good only to those who do good to you, why should you get credit? Even sinners do that much. And if you lend money only to those who can repay you, why should you get credit? Even sinners will lend to other sinners for a full return. Love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to be repaid. Then your reward from heaven will be very great. You will truly be acting as children. Note the word children there. This is this language of family that we've been talking about for a few weeks now. Children of the Most High, for He is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. You must be compassionate just as your Father. Father is compassionate. Again, it's the language of family. Verse 37, do not judge others and you will not be judged. Do not condemn others, or it will all come back against you. Forgive others, you will be forgiven. Give, you will receive. Your gift will return to you in full, pressed down, shaken together to make room for more, running over and poured out into your lap. The amount you give will determine the amount that you get back. Now here in Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Plain, Jesus is stating a manifesto, a vision of relational behavior in the kingdom of God. It is a teaching redefining the current social interactions and the system of status, turning relationships from being some commodity and some existing obligation to instead serving in service, loving in kinship. And there's a promise in this teaching that for those who practice this way of the redefinition, there'll be some fruit. Now, it's got to be noted, the audience listening would have found some of Jesus' ideas here absolutely preposterous. Okay? Among life within the Roman Empire, the abandoning of the hierarchy, the removal of the obligations, it would have been unimaginable for the audience. They would have been thinking, life actually can't work like that, can it? But yet, Jesus issues this vision, 
and it's one that is counter-cultural. And he tells of these redefining practices. Do this instead of that. Give more when this happens. And, and then he describes a fruitfulness that will come. You will be these kinds of people. You'll be the children of God. You know, in this movement from one to other, there is a growth to experience and a fruitful benefit to be received. So, so could this be done? Like, what would that fruitful life, is it actually possible? So, so let's stay with Luke's writings. I want to take you to another scripture now. I want to take you to Acts for two pieces of scripture. One you might know quite well and another one a little bit further on just to see the record of Jesus' body, his church, living out his manifesto and what happened. So here's Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47. This will be familiar to a lot of you. Try and listen to it with fresh ears today in regards to this manifesto from Jesus. So all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. And a deep sense of awe came over all of them, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place, and they shared everything that they had. They sold their property and their possessions and shared the money with those in need. See, this is Jesus' manifesto happening here. Uh, they worshipped together at the temple each day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper. They shared their meals with great joy and with generosity. And all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who are being saved. Um, Luke gives us another snapshot, just another sketch again in Acts chapter 4, a chapter later, uh, two chapters later, uh, verses 32 through to 37. It says this, All the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all. There was no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them, bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. For instance, there was Joseph, the one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was from the tribe of Levi and came from the island of Cyprus. He sold a field that he owned and he brought the money to the apostles. Now here, Luke issues two summary portraits of the early church. Sketches. They, they, they aren't all the details, but they contain some pretty important ones. Now in these portraits, we see that the early believers had turned what Jesus put into their imaginations into reality. They have lived out the manifesto that Jesus issued. They have taken on the practices and there is a fruitful benefit growing in their midst. The early church were people practicing together this life of counter-empire kingdom kingship. Now, the way that the world worked hadn't changed. All around them, these early disciples were still sitting in a culture of relationships that were viewed as commodity. There was a patron hierarchy. There was a ladder to climb. There was this venerated status. Who could get to the top? There was an exchange of obligations. Well, I'll give you this, but you better give me that. And let's not trick ourselves. This, this way of seeing relationships, it's still around. You know, even this week, several times, 
I felt like my relationships or status as pastor to others was, was like a commodity to be used either by them or by me. And there were stacks of unsaid obligations lurking in the, in the transaction of relationship this week for myself. But this new alternative family, this one that we just read about in Acts, they were doing things in a new way. They were writing a new way for relationships to work. This community was living out of a commitment to mutuality, of generosity, of solidarity, and of need. And in the melting pot of all of those things, this diverse group of people who are practicing the way of Jesus' manifesto from the Sermon on the Plain, they were experiencing the fruit of kingdom kinship. They were representing how life could look in God's way, not just as a theory, but in real, lived, every dimension of their lives kinds of ways. It was a life of community that they had received from God, so they freely gave it to one another. And they belonged with God, like orphans welcomed into a new family, so they welcomed others in. Now, there's a lot of sermons and a lot of teachings sitting in the text that I have brought to you today. Heaps, heaps. But today, I just want to keep this really simple and really clear. This is an important movement being displayed here in these texts from Luke. An arc, if you will. Remember the head to the, to the, to the rim of the, of the basketball hoop? Same idea, traveling along that. It is a, a movement of moving from witnessing the teachings and the manifesto of Jesus to actually living it in committed ways and the fruitfulness that comes from it. It's that tall blacks at my school moment all over again. It's a movement from spectating up in the crowd to coming and participating on the court. Now, I want to ask you a couple of questions here just to help you see this movement that I'm unpacking. Okay, so a couple of questions. Consider these. When you have needed help or when you've needed provision of something that our church could provide, do you ask for it? Have you confessed a sin to someone that you are accountable to in the last month? Does anyone else know a vulnerable hope that you are currently praying for? And have they joined you in praying for it? Have you started a new friendship at Central Vineyard in the last six months, eating at a table and sharing food and stories? Have you ignored or back-channeled or armoured up towards a person who has hurt you? Or have you been able to deal directly and openly with them and forgive them? Do, do you have intentional named practices to go against this cultural stream of autonomy? And do you do your life openly with others? Now those questions, those are just some questions to show our growth in discipleship to Jesus. And here's the kicker. None of those questions will even matter if all you ever do is attend the life of Jesus from afar as a spectator or as a face in the crowd. Because a crowd doesn't demand nearly any aspect of those questions from you. But if we are at the coalface of discipleship, if we are in relationship and in community, then those questions that I just asked 
they become the metrics as to whether we are growing in Jesus' way or not. They, they, they actually measure our relational health. They measure our love for others. Now the scriptural evidence of Luke validates Dallas Willard's simple yet profound line that we've been quoting a few times in this series already. Dallas Willard said this, you've heard us already say it, uh, to experience the kingdom of God, a group of people should get together and simply try to do the things that Jesus instructed his disciples to do. You know, within the larger arc of moving from spectator to participant, in this getting together to do the things of Jesus, we will, we will find ourselves in a series of other movements, of growth, other things that take us from being one way to another. You know, they're, they're like the mechanics of anchoring the feet, bending the knees, flicking the wrists, making the free throw. So today I want to reflect on a few of those. They are this in no particular order. These, these are some of the movements. There's the movement from a casual consumer to a committed contributor. The movement from a surface stranger to friends in fellowship. There's the movement from passive spirituality to an active spirituality. There's the movement from someone in a row to someone in a circle. We move from casual consumers to committed contributors. Let's start there. First one. This is the movement where we decide to turn from our mode of just being a punter and to respond to the call to experience life truly in an alternative family. We, we, we come to realize that just attending something on Sunday, it is not enough. It's important, it's beautiful, and it's so valued, but it's not enough because it's never going to allow us to go deep enough. And here's a little bit on why. When we just stay in that crowd, well, crowds have a sociological superpower. The superpower is this, anonymity. A crowd, a crowd can take a mess of individuals and absorb them into one individual mess. And people can do crazy things that they normally wouldn't do when they're in crowds because of the anonymity that they suddenly discover themselves in. Allowing the individual to get swept up into actions that one normally wouldn't find themselves doing. But also, also, people can hide in a crowd and just be part of that mess. We can feel safe in the absorption that we experience and we can hide amongst the other spectators. We can just be one of the crowd. <laughs> and in this state, all things are shallow, and while a crowd may collectively share a very deep experience together, they aren't going to find out many deeper details about each other and their lives of the people around them in their crowd. We actually need to step away from the crowd and into a more intimate space to be known properly. We need to make a decision to, to leave the anonymity and the absorption of the crowd and make a whole other space of being a committed contributor in the alternative family of God. In this space, it will have to be smaller. It will have to be a place where we can't hide as easily. It will have to be more vulnerable. But oh, it's worth it. 
It's so worth it because there we will experience what it is to go deeper in love with others. Which brings me to the next movement. Again, no particular order, but this one rolls on quite nicely from that last one. We will move from surface strangers to friends in fellowship. You know, if that smallest space is made really well, what we're gonna find ourselves doing, unlike in the crowd, is we're going to experience true hospitality. We're gonna experience generosity. We're gonna experience care. You know, surface strangers might know a face and a name. Maybe they know what each other does for a job. But if we enter a space regularly that allows us to be more fully known to each other, we will learn what each other dreams about. We'll learn each other's struggles. We'll, we'll, we'll learn how each other might vote and the opinions on how the country should be run. We'll see each other's hang-ups and, and we'll be there in the painful times. We'll experience strangers becoming friends. And in this space, we can begin to try on for real these new relationships that Jesus' manifesto points us towards. Though it may take a while to journey into them more fully, at least we are in the space and on the way. Now, Henri Nouwen, he says in his book, Reaching Out, it explores true faith, uh, tr the true way of Christian hospitality. For many of us, hospitality is just to make a space for more of our friends to come over for a dinner party. But, but Nouwen writes, no, no, Christian hospitality is not that. It is a space to make people who are strangers become Friends. It's a movement from stranger to friend. And when we engage properly with Christian hospitality, we'll go on that movement ourselves. Hospitality can become the gateway to learn how to be a more generous, more sacrificial, and more caring person. The crowd is a mass that we cannot do this so well in. But a smaller gathering, a small group, man, they can nail it. Being in a hospitable space with a few people where you eat around a table, where you talk and you listen on the couch, where you pray for one another. This is, this is going to be a natural byproduct uh, coming out of this, of becoming to know one another and growing in friendship. And sometimes this friendship, it just happens really naturally. We click with the people that we, that we like, we click with the people that are like us, but other times, actually most of the time, we'll find that we have to work on it. Which brings me to the third movement to point out. The third movement was uh, we move from being a passive spirituality to active spirituality. Uh, the Christian practice of fellowship, which was in, that, in the scriptures and Acts, they committed themselves to fellowship. Well, this is the practice to getting together in friendship, like I just talked about above. And it's a trellis that we grow our relationships well against. It's, it's a commitment choice. It's a regular rhythm. We stake it in the ground. And, and it's that we would switch from this passive, floaty, being swept along kind of picture of relationships to something that's actually formed against this. It's got strength to it. And we seek transformation and renewal actively. Now, one little side note that I just want to say here. When we're speaking about disciplines, when we're speaking about practices of our faith, um, Dallas Willard says this, Grace isn't opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. Now these practices, these disciplines, we commit to them. It doesn't earn us anything further with God's love for us. But they do make room for God to work in our hearts and our lives. 
And we must not forget that. We, we must not forget that our efforts are healthy when we see them as partnering with God, for Him to do what we could not do on our own without that space. So in his book, Practicing the Way of Jesus Together, Mark Scandretti, he comments on the early church that we've just been looking at today in the, in the book of Acts, and he says this, Together they formed an environment, a community practice, where whole life transformation was expected and supported. And notice the intentionality there of Scandretti's last two words. Transformation was expected and supported. Those are two very active words. You know, community, community takes articulation of intent and preparing for it. It, it doesn't just happen. It's like the moment where the tall black was standing next to me on the free throw line. And he's saying to me, these are the steps you need to take. He's coaching me through it, what to do. When we say yes to fellowship, we are invited onto the court of discipleship to then learn the mechanics of prayer, the mechanics of teaching, discernment, dialogue, and, and receiving from God. We learn these teen plays of living according to the scriptures, of forgiveness, and of how to honor one another, of how to hold our tongue. We actually find ourselves engaged in a life resembling that of the church portrait from the book of Acts. You're choosing to practice, choosing to practice fellowship, it will, it will take us from the crowd and it will draw us out of those passive behaviors and it will engage us in deeper growth and training. And we'll find ourselves in the thick of this action of life, transformation in all areas. Which brings me to the final movement, the last thing to reflect on today. It's the big call of this talk, actually. It's, and it's the call that we've been offering many, many years at Central Vineyard. We move from someone who's just in a row on Sunday to someone who is in a circle. You know, to experience the deeper things of discipleship, you must move from someone who's just in the crowd to someone who's in committed connection and relationship. Now, I don't want to be misunderstood here. I don't want you to misunderstand me. I love big church gatherings on Sunday. I love them. We are a church who highly values gathering on Sundays. It, it does certain things that only it can do. And we look forward to the wave of Omicron being over so that we can get together and do that again soon. But in our church architecture and the way that we structure our church, the activities and the priorities that we have here at Central Vineyard, we are deeply, deeply, deeply convinced that being together on Sunday nails a certain set of good things together, but we're also aware that it has limitations. And there's a whole other teaching series on the limitations of that. So we've always said, the best place for us all to experience a richer, transformative life with Jesus is with others. It's in these small groups of relationships where we can do life together. Hence why we call these groups circles. They are those circular spaces, those groups around us, those people we're connected to, rather than the rows that we find ourselves in on Sunday. You know, our circles are the intentional space in our larger church architecture to experience everything I've just talked about, not just for today, but for these last couple of weeks, the things that me and Leisha have been speaking on. A circle is a space to move from being a casual consumer to a committed contributor. 
Um, a circle is a space to move from being a surface stranger to finding friends in fellowship. A circle is a space to move from floating around in passive spirituality to engaging in active spirituality. A circle is a space to intentionally step out of the anonymity of the row. So, all that said, well, let's just talk a little bit about circles for a moment. How can you get into one? How can you make one? How could you reinvigorate your current one if it's gone a little bit flat? <laughs> well, well, very simply, there are two options at Central Vineyard. Firstly, there's the organic, and then secondly, there's the organized. So organic circles, that's your friendship groups that you naturally have around you by your own making. This might be a, a couple of close Christian friends, or a couple of mentors that you've started seeing for coffee, or it might be a couple of people that you have just been praying with each week. And we would call those spaces organic spaces of community. You're practicing a bit of community there. And that is awesome. Keep going. Um, I have a series of those for myself. Good, small, organic circles to do my discipleship in. But my encouragement and our invitation of this series is to not just stay in those, those organic circles, but to either formalize them further or get into something more intentional. We cannot grow fully just by being with those who are our friends. Only staying in those circles is actually going to stunt our growth. So to move from the informal to the intentional, we have our organized circles. Now, these are the groups that are established as spaces with leaders and hosts. They are ready for you to come to. And we have circles meeting in all kinds of places and times throughout the week. They're on our website. There's a section there um, that are open and waiting for you to join in. And it's just worth saying here, there's actually a bunch more organized circles on the website that are shown there. But, but what you have to do is you have to kind of click a filter to see them because they're currently closed. And what that means is that the group has got to a size where it has maxed out. That could be because of a couple of things. Maybe it's the literal space in the lounge, or it's just got to that tipping point of, of size where it feels a bit too large to keep achieving the things that we're talking about in today's message. They're not closed because we're trying to be unwelcoming. Instead, it's, it's that, that we want to protect with intentionality the, the size of these groups to achieve the things that they can achieve when they're the right size. So if, if you're interested, in one of these circles, head to the website, check them out, get along. And finally, the last thing to note is that we are always looking out for more circle leaders uh, who can make some more groups. So if you are thinking that maybe this is something that you're now in a season of and you'd be interested in doing it, then why don't you reach out, let us know, and we'll start the process with you of getting things going. You might already even have an organic circle already, and it's just a case of making it a bit more formal, structuring it up a little bit more so that we can get a few more people along to it and we can resource you well as a leader. You know, all of this to say, all of that to say, when we think of the church architecture of Central Vineyard, Life in circles has been really important and it will only be even more of a priority as we keep going forward into this reordered future post-COVID. And we believe that this is not just because it's a good idea or because, you know, another thing to get to makes us more spiritual or something like that. It's not that. 
We believe that this is important because some of our best stories of transformation, they have come from our circles over the years. This is where we've found stories of people really opening up and being seen and being understood and experiencing belonging. This is where we've found stories of people finding courage to give the way of Jesus a go, maybe even afresh. You know, we've found stories of needs being met, generosity being practiced when someone has needed something. This is where we've found stories of intergenerational mentoring and parenting. This is where we've found stories of tables that have become, uh, become surrounded by new friends and laughter and celebrations. This is where we've found stories of working through disagreements of opinion and seeking forgiveness of one another. And this is where we've found the stories of God moving and moments of prayer or random midweek prophecies and encouragement to each other. But my favorite thing, my favorite thing about Life in Circles is that it's actually where we watch as our crowd who is in the bleachers, who attend something, move from just being in that row to coming down onto the court and to try and throw some free throws. It's where we see people move from being the spectator to a participant. You know what? That's what this has always meant to be about. We've been a church whose original vision was we want to see people playing their part in God's story. This movement to become participants in this alternative family of God, it's one of the most important markers for us. And so Central Vineyard, may we not just live in some theory of community, but may we live in the reality of being an alternative family. May we build community, moving from the rows of spectating to the spaces of participation. And may the fruitfulness of loving friendship, of maturity and spirituality, and a deeply connected life, may that be what we experience as a result. And as it was with the early church, that church from Acts, may the countercultural way of living, may that be so beautiful and so attractive that others would be daily added to our number as a result.